Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, October 24th, 2011. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. And we discuss the Division Three football season as it occurs uh, through Week 8 and headed into Week 9 as uh, crunch time begins to start making its crunching noises in the background. The final three weeks of the uh, Division Three regular season are upon us. But, uh, you know, we have a, obviously... Every automatic bid has yet to be clinched, but we certainly had uh, some pretty interesting results on Saturday, including uh, three ranked teams, uh, three showdowns between ranked teams, uh, one upset, uh, a couple of puzzles, and then we'll uh, take you through the uh, the uh, what the at-large picture looks like as it begins to just take a little bit of a hint of shape here after eight weeks of the football season. There's still one and a half more weeks before we get to see the NCAA's regional rankings. We won't get those until November 2nd. So, um, you know, this this discussion is about as informed as it can be, and hopefully uh, you guys feel the same way. Uh, and, and Keith, to uh, to jump into Saturday, um, you know, obviously we're going to talk more about how these games affect the at-large picture in a little bit, but I want to start with... Uh, the Illinois Wesleyan North Central game. Illinois Wesleyan, who had had um, some pretty good success at home over the last couple of years, and especially uh, against uh, the the other two teams that have traditionally been in contention in recent years for the CCIW title, um, got shut out. That's there's no uh, there's no pretty way to put it. I, I don't have any icing for this cake. Uh, if you're an Illinois Wesleyan fan, for North Central, uh, continuation of a uh, of a of a string of dominance that uh, basically started the moment they got off the plane coming back from California in Week One. Yeah, and and for a team like that to have you know been humbled to lose and then turn around, yeah, and really, uh, they they've the the numbers that jumped off the the after those after that loss were offensive numbers. They put up, you know, 165 points the next two games, and they really stood out that way. But I thought on Saturday, what stood out was the way they played defense. And that's kind of a theme um, as we go through these these top these really top 10 teams uh, that all won their big games on uh, on Saturday. Each of them played pretty good, pretty well defensively. And that's uh, that's you know one of the reasons why they won. Sometimes we get blinded a little bit by these gaudy offensive numbers that have been put up, and you forget that a dominant defense can carry a team far. And, and when a team uh, gets itself behind the eight ball with a week one loss like North Central did, to be able to buckle down and play against the best team it's played so far, at least the best conference team that it's played so far, and uh, and and to shut them out, uh, that's pretty impressive. It is, you know. Um... Illinois Wesleyan got blanked for the first time since 2005 uh, on their own homecoming. Uh, in in addition to that, uh, just 61 yards on the ground, 18 for 39 passing, three interceptions uh, for the Titans. And you know, North Central, it, I still get we still get email, and I I know we haven't talked about this in a few weeks, but uh, how Redlands can be ranked behind North Central, and and one of the things that I thought was. Uh, a, a reasonable interpretation from the beginning, it seems even more so now, is that um, you know, North Central is better than they were on that particular Saturday, and we, we go to the Any Given Saturday clause, but North Central has just been lighting it up on both sides of the ball, really. Yeah, and I, I mean, in the case of North Central, and probably Wesley, this is true too, just in terms of the top 25, because those teams have consistently been up so high, and, and they sort of earned that respect over the over the years, um, people look at their losses as a little bit of a fluke and, and you know, they, they, neither of those teams drop too far. And, and it's also one of those sort of science of top 25 deals where, uh, 
if you want to lose, you lose early in the season so you can rise back up the standings because the way North Central has played uh, since that loss, and, and the same goes for Wesley, but probably not to, to such a dominant degree as, as the Cardinals have done. Um, you can earn that respect back by you lose that you lose the game early. It was a close loss. It was a, a loss you can explain away to a you know great team after a long trip that's not characteristic of, of Division three. And um, all of a sudden you have this team that's 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 looking as good as any team in the country, uh, you know, outside of the, the top two. And uh, that's probably something that we should talk about later on the podcast too, Pat, is is we probably have a pretty consistent top five. But then who's number six? Who goes, Who fills in from, from six to ten? You know, North Central is right at the top of the list. I think, me personally, I still can't ignore the, the head-to-head result. But Redlands, the way they've played the past couple of weeks, you know, they're, they're sort of just getting by. Or at least with the, with the, the claremont Mudscripts game, you know, having to win on a Hail Mary. That certainly isn't convincing when you turn around and you look at North Central playing the quality of teams that they play in the CCIW and, uh, you know, either putting up a bunch of points or, or turning around and limiting a team like Illinois Wesley in the 215 total yards. Well, yeah, um, having to survive on a, uh, on a Hail Mary last week and then having to uh, survive against a, a two-point conversion pass attempt with uh, 10 seconds left for that Occidental could have tied the game with uh, out on the East Coast. The, uh, the, the, the Redlands-Occidental game had uh, for so many years decided the uh, the Skyac and Occidental I guess decided on Saturday that they were not going to go away quietly although they did lose to Redlands 42 to 40. Um, one of our other showdowns is you know the, I think uh, the one that had us on our uh, on the edge of our seats for well, I guess all but the last uh, one second of the game with the final <laughs> kneel down was a Whitewater top ranked team in the country uh, having won 36 consecutive games going to Wisconsin Oshkosh, and, and this was a matchup that we had been in, anticipating and we've been talking about for, you know, probably six or so weeks here uh, coming into coming into week eight, and it certainly did not disappoint. No, not, not at all. It, it, was, it was great right down to the fourth quarter. Whitewater had to put together what it probably considers one of its epic drives of, of the past few seasons to, uh, you know, to come down and kick the 17-yard field goal to win the game. But the, the reason we looked forward to this game so much is because uh, we, you know, we saw the seed planted. I think a little bit last season with the way uh, Nate Wara played for um, for Oshkosh, and then they started off this season well. You know, and they didn't they didn't show that well uh, at Mount Union, but other than that, or against Mount Union, but other than that, you know, they they we get this idea of could a team win its other eight games and then lose to, to the two dominant programs in Division Three and get in the playoffs. And uh, we realized on, on Saturday, before we even get to that, maybe Oshkosh will, will make that a moot point and, and we'll, we'll see them upset Whitewater. And it's so rare that, that teams uh, give Whitewater and Mountain Union a challenge that when they do, it really is uh, something where the rest of Division Three kind of stops and, and peers in. And uh, there was a point in, the, in this game where, you know, Oshkosh led at halftime, 17-10. It was tied at 17, you know, in the third quarter. And, and it was a game in the fourth quarter. And that's what you want to see. Uh, in, in any competitive game, in any top 25 clash. But uh, this one, you know, had the, had the potential to knock off the number one team in the country. Yeah, uh, Whitewater trailed at the half. Yeah, as you mentioned, that was the first time since the uh, the 2008 Stag Bowl that the uh, the Warhawks had trailed at the half, and they had to come uh, with a, a 79-and-a-half-yard drive uh, capped by a 17-yard field goal. And, and literally, um, I'm watching it on the video and, and watching the, uh, the, the holder set up, and I'm thinking... That's going to be a 17-yard field goal. How, you know, how unusual is that? 
because usually uh, even when the ball's on the one yard line, you uh, you you set up you know seven yards behind the line of scrimmage, and then plus ten for the back of the end zone makes eighteen. You know, and then even even taking that into account, uh, Oshkosh gets the ball back. Uh, you know, with only a minute eighteen left. But uh, you know, one of the great somebody who's emerging, I guess, as one of the great quarterbacks in Division Three, and uh, you know, he, he had a chance to uh, to make it interesting. Was at one point during that draft, completes a twenty yard pass. They get to about midfield, and you start thinking they they don't really need but another you know fifteen twenty yards and maybe get in field goal range and uh, and, and tie it up for them. Oh. Yep, and it was the uh, it was it was Casey Casper and the the Warhawk defense that came up big as a. Uh, as Oshkosh had gotten down to the 37-yard line uh, of Whitewater and needing, you know, probably as you say, another 10 yards or so to have a, a legitimate shot at a uh, at a at a Division three game tying field goal, uh, where is sacked for a loss of three yards. Then he uh, uh, they spike the ball. He throws an incompletion on third down, and then on the uh, fourth down with eight seconds left, the hail mary to the end zone is uh, intercepted, and uh, Whitewater holds on for the 20 to 17 win. And, and it came down, you know, to defense as it did, I think, for St. Thomas, certainly for North Central and uh, and probably in the case of, uh, of Mount Union, too. You know, they had to play some great defense on Saturday to uh, to, to get through a game. There, there was a point on Saturday where, uh, you know, Whitewater's trailing. Uh, Mount Union is, is leading, but they're struggling. And uh, and Mary Harden Baylor also trailing. And, you know, those are three of the premier programs of the last, you know, five, six, seven, ten years. I can't think of a Saturday when they've all been, you know, trailing or tied or within three points uh, of of a team at halftime, and none of them are, are playing, you know, other dominant teams. They're playing good, solid teams from their own conference. Yeah, it is, um, and that's what I uh, what I sh- I struggle with, and I struggle to understand Mount Union this year. And um, I need to get my hands on some tape, maybe, but I'm not sure that would necessarily help me. I am not a I'm not a film breakdown kind of guy. Um, and I, uh, I don't have the, uh, the sports pack this year, so I, I can't watch the, the replays on, uh, Sports Time Ohio. Um, maybe I need to invest 12 bucks for a month so I can, uh, so I can watch some of these games, but it, it is, um, and I know we're going to talk a little bit more, more about Mount Union in a little bit, but, um, Mount Union certainly puzzles me, and I'm sure people who, um, who look at the, uh, Oshkosh Whitewater, uh, score on Saturday, uh, are puzzled a little bit as well. We did have a little bit of uh, shifting at the top of the poll. We did have a net of one number one vote switch over from uh, from Whitewater to Mount Union, but in actuality, three people changed their ballots. <laughs> Two went to Mount Union and one came back from Mount Union to Whitewater. And, that, and that's interesting because I'm, I don't know if either of them played so well that, that they convinced somebody else to vote for them. I think maybe both of them showed enough weakness where somebody decided that the other one, you know, that, that they weren't as confident in the one they had been voting for and switched in that direction. Um, because, you know, seeing Oshkosh, you know, take Whitewater in, into the fourth quarter, seeing Mount Union, you know, struggle to put up points until midway through the third quarter against, against Capital, which has struggled this season. Capital's not the program it was in, in the, in the middle of the decade. Uh, last year, where it was a you know a, a national semifinalist, quarterfinalist type program every season, um, that, that that says maybe there's some chinks in the armor, and if there is, that that maybe opens up the door for for you know number three type of team, whether it's St. Thomas or, or Mary Harden Baylor or Linfield or, or somebody down the line, and maybe it means we have a more interesting playoff season, or or 
maybe this is the reason why Whitewater and Mount Union are always in the uh, in the national championship game because when they do get tested, they respond. They're, they're able to find ways to pull out the victory. You know, for, for Whitewater, it was to put together a long drive and have to kick a short field goal. For Mount Union, it was as the offense struggled throughout the game, you know, lost Jeremy Murray to injury, the defense was consistent, and they never let teams get on track. I think C- Capital had, you know, like 156 total yards, four turnovers. You know, no, you, even if Mount Union only scores 21 or 27 points in a game, if you can't, if you, your team can't score but seven, if you can't gain 200 yards of offense, you're not going to have any chance to beat them anyway, even if the score isn't gaudy. No, and the uh, the next Mount Union name that you guys uh, out there are going to have to remember uh, is Jake Simon, the uh, junior running back. Uh, came in after uh, Murray got banged up in the first half. He finished. Uh, Simon finished with 17 carries for 169 yards and a touchdown. He uh, also caught a pair of passes. Yeah, this is a guy who um, had has been used consistently because obviously, uh, you know, Mount Union when it's uh, when it's clicking on all cylinders is in a position to uh, play backups quite a bit during the course of the game. And, and uh, Simon has gotten you know 30, 40, 50 yards rushing in in a, in a few games this season. But uh, this was a, a pretty big performance for him off the bench. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know we've talked over the years about Larry Karras being sort of the master of in-game adjustments and and that's part of it but he also knows his team well he knows what it's capable of and what it doesn't do so well and it looked you know again i wasn't there you're you're watching this game from afar and and watching people uh talk about it on the boards and 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 tweet and all these different things and you try to get a feel for what what happened there uh look like mount union can't move the ball they're 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 passing game isn't what it, it's been um you know neil seaman uh, and matt Pilato both playing at quarterback but neither of them has turned into you know somebody who we consider worthy of being in that in that long that big pantheon of great mountain union quarterbacks at least not yet so mountain union buckles down and runs the ball they fi- they finish with 328 rushing yards on saturday and they hold capital to 45 yards so you got the great running game or at least a consistently good running game and the great defense and then they only turn the ball over once mount union and they force four turnovers you know anytime you you, you other team can't establish the run and you force turnovers you usually put yourself in position to win yeah and uh, nick driscoll with a pair of interceptions for Mount Union and uh, the uh, the Purple Raiders do remain undefeated. Go to seven and zero by defeating Capital twenty seven to seven. The third of the uh, of the top twenty five clashes was it in Arden Hills, Minnesota, where St. Thomas beat Bethel, and uh, St. Thomas uh, and and Bethel is is turned into a a, a, a certainly a, a rivalry of, of respect, if if not necessarily you know a, a rivalry among the. Uh, um, with the vitriol, I guess, <laughs> of St. Thomas, St. John's. Uh, I, I don't have, I'm not going to go back and edit that word, but there's probably a better one that, that could be dropped in there. But these two teams, you know, obviously have have, uh, have lined up against each other now three times in the past 16 games or so, and it's always been um, some pretty hard-nosed smash-mouth football. It, uh, in this case, uh, St. Thomas gets a little bit of revenge for uh, the way its season ended at home in the national quarterfinals to Bethel last year. And in the process, they got to knock Bethel out of the playoff hunt as well. Yeah. And, you know, Bethel now, it, it seems it's been happening this way, you know, the past few seasons actually in the Mayak where you have the, the three teams sort of at the top and uh, whichever team, you know, if a team happens to pick up uh, two losses, it can be two close losses, you know, and it, it can be right there 
neck and neck, nose to nose with two of the best teams in the country or two of the teams that will be ranked in the top 25. And uh, and Bethel actually still is ranked in the top 25, even with the two losses. But um, if you happen to come out on the short end of both of those games, you know, you're out of the playoff hunt in, in most cases in Division three when you pick up that second loss so so Bethel now is a team that's uh you know they've they've played I think consistently pretty well they gave away a, a big lead 20 points to St. Olaf in the uh in the fourth quarter lost that game by two and then they, you know they they were in this game uh it was 20 to 13 in the fourth quarter uh you know so they were within a touchdown against uh against St. Thomas ended up losing 23 to 13 but you know they're with, within one score of two teams now that are uh right on the track to make the playoffs. Yeah, the Tommy's, the Tommy's jumped up on top of them early. Uh, uh, two touchdowns for Colin Tobin on the ground in the first quarter. They took a 14-0 lead. And then uh, St. Thomas added a 48-yard field goal by Tim Albright. Uh, off This is uh, off grass at, at Bethel. Into a little bit of a wind. They go up 17-0 midway through the second quarter. And then from that point... Uh, you know, the Bethel defense buckled down. Dakota Tracy, the St. Thomas quarterback, struggled a little bit throwing the ball. He ended up, um, he was 7 of 11 th- uh, passing in the first half, just 4 of 11 with an interception in the, in the second half, and just uh, 38 yards passing after halftime for Tracy. So that's certainly something that uh, St. Thomas can, can take away from this and, and go back and work on this week. Um, but, you know, so that, uh, that, defensive surge by Bethel uh, allowed the offense to get back into the game a little bit. Um, Bethel had uh, had two disastrous fourth down conversion attempts, uh, one out near midfield and one at about the St. Thomas 35-yard line um, in the first half. They converted on a fourth down and then uh, finished with a, uh, a, a uh, Josh Ockrey touchdown run to make it 20-13 to with 5.55 to go in the third quarter. And then, you know, uh, things just kind of bogged down from there until uh, St. Thomas kicked a field goal to go up 10 with three minutes to go in the ball game. Uh, Bethel forced to run the hurry up, throws an interception in the end zone, uh, and St. Thomas essentially can, runs out the clock from there for the uh, for the 10-point win. But to talk about the defensive numbers, uh, Bethel still got 300 yards of total offense, but uh, the Tommies shut down uh, Brandon Marquardt, who was the uh, stud running back for Bethel. He's a transfer from a Division II school, uh, and he had had uh, some pretty good games coming into the, the afternoon on Saturday, but finished with just 10 carries for 10 yards. So he was bottled up. Uh, Josh Ockrey was uh, 13 for 26 passing. He was also the leading rusher with 76 yards. But you know, we talk about um, how teams, uh, in order to compete at an elite level, need to be uh, uh, you know need to be strong in all three facets: uh, offense, defense, and special teams. We spend a lot of time talking about um, talking about defense uh, here in this podcast, and we talk about offense a lot. Um, but St. Thomas, one of the things that impressed me is the the confidence. Uh, in the kicker, and then the the ability of Tim Albright to come out and, and kick a 48-yard field goal, whereas uh, Bethel, whose kicking struggles were legendary last year, um, in, in a position where they, they can kick uh, some field goals this year, and they are actually uh, two for two. They've uh, Their longest is a 32-yarder. But they had, obviously, times where um, they could have tried a 48-yard field goal or even closer and decided they had to bypass it uh, in order to go for it on fourth down and had that fail. But I, I think that's one of the things that um, elite teams do at this level that's not really talked about very much is the ability to you know convert when your drive stalls at the 25-yard line. 
Yeah, I, I think also too you take that same concept and, and and add it onto the fact when you you get a little bit of a lead and then you know the, in football man the momentum changes so quickly and all of a sudden it it, it can turn on you and and, all, and and St. Thomas can be you know in that game the team in front but but maybe starts to get the pressure on it a little bit because the first two touchdowns came easily and then all of a sudden the, the points aren't coming quite as easily anymore and, and Bethel starts to have a little bit of success and to be able to tack on another field goal. Uh, and tack on another field goal, and then later in the fourth quarter, tack on that last field goal to be able to just keep extending that lead a little bit, even when things aren't going great for you. You know, St. Thomas is averaging you know 400 and some odd yards a game and 40 points a game, and used to having things come easily. And then when it when it doesn't come easily, to at least have uh, enough of a of of a kicking game to say we don't have to move the ball. 80 yards down the field, but if we can gain 30 or 40 yards and get in, you know, get in the field goal range and, and, and tack on a few points here, you, know, you can continue to extend that lead. And it never got to a point in that game uh, where, where the pressure got so bad on St. Thomas, where they were, where they were, if we make one mistake, we're, we're going to fall behind in this game. You know, they kept tacking on to that lead. And that's really important to be able to do when you're, when you're talking about being a team that's going to be able to go deep into the playoffs. Those were the three games between ranked teams, the higher-ranked team in the D3Football.com Top 25 won each of those games. There was one upset in the Top 25 on Saturday, and uh, our uh, our friend Frank Rossi was there. We'll hear from him in just a moment. Uh, but uh, College of New Jersey on homecoming uh, defeats ninth-ranked Montclair State by the score of 27-21. to 21. Um, you know, We kind of uh, previewed this a little bit in the triple take, but uh, in Montclair State, uh, been struggling since uh, Fisher, the starting quarterback, their number one quarterback, went out with an with an injury. He uh, uh, you know, uh, drew Kathy the backup. Started last week, played the entire game. You know they were able to win that game, but uh, you know when, when you get to a, a tougher opponent, a tough opponent on the road, this is a little bit of a rivalry as well. Uh, you know things change a little bit. Yeah, they do, and, and you know things change within a team. You get so used to a guy, and, and, and Tom Fisher had been this guy now for you know not just a couple games for Montclair State, but a couple seasons. He's been he's been the leader, and uh, you know you lose him, and, and they still have you know Chris Andrea and and so many other guys who have been parts of good you know ten win teams the past couple seasons, and so they, they, the the cupboard's not bare when you lose your quarterback, but it does some sometimes change your offensive identity, and uh, this is Montclair State. You know, even though they were ranked in the top ten, they they had they hadn't been blowing teams away. They've been finding ways to win. You know, you go back a couple weeks. Um, you know, not just the game that we brought up a bunch of times in, in September where they had to survive at at Morrisville State, but you know, they they only only beat Brockport State by a touchdown. They they pulled out the the win against Cortland, thirty four thirty three. So they weren't they weren't crushing teams. You know, even though they they were had moved up the rankings pretty consistently, and I started to get the same feel about them as we got about Kane a few weeks ago that they were they were vulnerable and and when in the injack the way that conference is, uh, you got four potentially five teams that are consistently testing teams uh, every week at TCNJ. You know, pretty good on defense, and they got a lead in that game, and and Montclair State without its quarterback, you know, wasn't able to rally. And uh, College of New Jersey, uh, however, did rally behind James Donahue, the uh, quarterback. And here's what he had to say to Frank Rossi after the game. Well, we got Cortland and we still have Rowan and we have Westcon. So, I mean, we got three more tough NJAC games. we got to win them all. You know? can, can you win this conference? I think so. I think everybody else here thinks that. So, we just got to keep putting games together. 
that's what they have in front of them. TCNJ doesn't quite control its own destiny. They have two conference losses, and they've already lost to Kane, who has one conference loss. So they need some help. Uh, Kane's got to lose uh, two more games in order for them to come back and win the conference title. But uh, TCNJ does, as I mentioned, uh, as Jay mentioned, Cortland and Rowan. Cortland's coming up next week. Rowan, the final week of the season, uh, so they can knock off two of the teams that are ahead of them or tied with them. But there is a long, there's a bit of a long road to go for them, and it's certainly a, a muddied end jack picture now. Yeah, I mean, you can look at it that way. It, it's from a national perspective, it's pretty muddy. But in in the sense of uh, just within the conference, you have five teams now, seven weeks, seven games into the season that uh, have at least five wins. That's TCNJ, Cortland State, Rowan are all five and two. Montclair State, Kane six and one. Uh, Kane, Montclair State, and Rowan have one loss in the conference. Cortland State, TCNJ, two losses. They you know they need a little bit of help. Uh, I think the great thing about this race is you, you know you got the teams. Five teams sort of running side by side right now, and you, you, every every week now, these last three weeks here, you're going to have big clashes. Now you mentioned Pat a couple of them this week coming up. Rowan's at Kane, TCNJ's at Cortland State. Then the next week, you know Montclair State is at Rowan, and then you go to you know the final week. Cortland State obviously plays the big rivalry game with Ithaca, so they're done with their conference schedule. But they're going to be keeping an eye on, on on TCNJ playing down at Rowan, and they'll be keeping an eye on the score from uh, from Kane playing at Montclair State. So, you know these last three weeks here in the NJAC shaping up to be as as exciting as any other conference in the country. Yeah. Five teams in the NJAC standings, all separated by one game or less. Kane, Montclair, Rowan at five and one. Cortland five and two, and TCNJ at four and two. We talked about uh, Bethel getting knocked out of the playoff picture for all intents and purposes. Uh, you know, the the chances of a team with two losses getting into the uh, getting into the playoffs, two regional losses getting into the playoffs is uh, you know virtually unheard of as an at-large bid. It, it it so rarely happens. Uh, there's a, a team out there that uh, we think is a good candidate with two losses. We will get back to them in a second. But there are a handful of teams that are, for lack of a better term, in control of their own destiny as far as uh, a playoff at large bid uh, is is concerned. And I say that um, you know with the the air quotes because you know when when it comes when it comes down to putting your uh, season in the hands of a committee, you never quite know what's going to happen. And certainly at this point, since we don't have regional rankings yet, we don't know for sure. But there, there are four teams who are in pretty good shape. They can win out without winning their conference title, finish nine and one or eight and one, and finish with one regional loss, and and be in pretty good position. Uh, one of them is a team we've talked about already, Saint Olaf. Uh, they beat Bethel earlier. Uh, their losses to Saint Thomas. It, it was not in impressive fashion, that's for sure. But uh, St. Thomas has not played a whole lot of close games this year either. Uh, Redlands is another one. We talked about their candidacy and, and their resume in previous weeks as well. Illinois Wesleyan, and I think uh, Louisiana College would go on that list as well, uh, or possibly McMurray, whichever uh, team wins that head-to-head -head game coming up. Yeah, I, I think all those teams are going to be in good shape. You know, McMurray has sort of the the weirdest resume out of those those groups because they have the or those teams you mentioned in that group because. They have the two non D three games at the start of their schedule, but the American Southwest is is a uh, pretty impressive conference, and they also have the, uh, the 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 close score against Mary Harden Baylor to, to sort of you know sway uh, when they you know when they get on the board. I think though, Pat, when you mention um, you know being at the mercy of the committee, part of it is that, but part part of it is that you're also at the mercy of 
what everybody else across the country is doing. And so what happens is you not only you have a stake in your own game on every Saturday and you have a stake in every other game around the, around the conference. That's normal. But then you start having a stake in games that you wouldn't you would never pay attention to. You know, all of a sudden McMurray and Louisiana College and, and Redlands and St. Olaf, they're going to be rooting, you know, for, for Delaware Valley to, to win the Mac. Right. To get Widener and get Lycoming out of the uh, out of the picture here, because if one of those teams wins the conference and kicks Delval down into Pool C, now that's one more team that's that's hunting for one of those six at large bids. And, and Pat, we could go down the list of, you know, on more than a dozen conferences, maybe as many as 16 conferences that have a potential Pool C team lingering. And uh, if it gets to that point, you know, there won't be 16 teams in it. On uh, at the end of week eleven, but if there's nine like there was last year, or eight, or ten, you know some teams are going to get in, and some teams with pretty good resumes are going to get left out, and, and you, we can go back several years, you know, and find nine and one teams that that were out in the cold just because they didn't stack up well enough on the criteria against the other nine and one and eight and one teams. And of of those four teams that we mentioned, or we really mentioned five teams, but in essence they're going to whittle themselves down to four at the at the very least. Um, for those six spots, that, that leaves uh, e- even if uh, we get uh, even if all those teams went out and get in, there's two spots open. I think obviously we have to talk about Wisconsin Oshkosh because um, yeah, especially if a- as Central continues to win, you know they lost a couple games early, but they're uh, they, they still have just the two losses. They're not out of the picture completely for the Iowa Conference title, but um, it's not it's not the best uh, chances ever, and they are. Um, you know, in a position where they can finish out eight and two anyway, and then make um, what's the word I'm looking for? Make uh, Wisconsin Oshkosh's resume look better. I mean, Oshkosh's resume already looks pretty good. Strength of schedule, uh, they're at 6:05. That's a gigantic number. Remember, um, most of these uh, strength of schedule numbers tend to stay close to 500, and this is pretty far up. This is uh, the 14th best strength of schedule number right now in Division Three, and you know. The committee has proven and shown and knows year after year that nobody beats Whitewater at Mount Union. And here's the team that's played both of them. Um, they played competitively against one of them. As you mentioned uh, earlier, they almost made this whole conversation a moot point because they almost beat Whitewater in the first place on Saturday. Um, one of these losses is a non-region game. And you know the, uh, the book says, anyway, that in-region uh, results are, are to be considered primarily before we talk about uh, out-of-region results. Um, in football, sometimes that gets thrown out the window a little bit because there are only nine or ten games to, to uh, consider in the first place, and it's, it's hard to throw out a data point when there's so little data to begin with. Um, you know, and then they have a, a pretty decent uh, out-of-conference win on their resume as well. I, I think that uh, you know, they have to be considered in this group of favorites, and if, if they finish out 8-2, and two, uh, at the at, with what they've done this season and they get left out, I think that would be a travesty. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I guess we're both big on the, on the bandwagon here, but but part of the reason is because they've I think proven uh, over the course now of several weeks that they're, that they're you know worthy of a their their top twenty five ranking, but also worthy of being in this playoff discussion. And here's what sets it apart: it's not just a, a team that. That lost to Mountain Union, or that had the, had the gall to schedule Mountain Union when they already you know know they have to play Whitewater in their conference schedule. But then they go and, and they have Whitewater on the ropes, end up losing that game twenty to seventeen. So who, who have they lost to? They've lost at Mountain Union, seven and zero 
team ranked in the top two. They lost uh, at home against seven and O team. Uh, you know, obviously one of the dominant two teams in Division Three. But then, Pat, you go back to the the question that we always ask: It's not who you lost to, who did you beat? Well, you beat a six win team in Central. In fact, everybody on their schedule that they've beaten, it has a winning record. Stouts four and three, Eau Claire's four and three, Platteville's four and three. They haven't played a team with a losing record except for River Falls. So you got, you got a team that's five and two. Right at this point, you know, and they'll have lacrosse coming up, but they also have uh, Stevens Point, which also has a winning record. So they're going to have, you know, potentially, uh, I know all these WIAC teams have to play each other, but potentially several wins over teams with winning records at the end of the season. And that sort of gives them that strength of schedule number that you mentioned. But also when you're just looking at the uh, their resume against a team that say, say you have a team that's nine and one, um, but only gets one or two games against winning teams over the course of a season you, you really do have to consider the strength of of Oshkosh's schedule not just what the uh what the numbers boil down to but also you know what just looking at the eye test saying well these guys they played Mount Union Whitewater and then they played all these other winning teams in what's you know universally regarded as the, the toughest conference in D3. And just, you know, one more note to throw out there. The the strength of schedule number that the NCAA uses only counts the in-region games. So that uh, gaudy number that I quoted for Oshkosh a few minutes ago doesn't even include the Mount Union game, which obviously would raise that number quite a bit because Mount Union is uh, undefeated. And, you know, despite uh, some of the puzzling results of the past few weeks, uh, would, would certainly seem to uh, be in position to win out and stay that way as well. Um, so those are the... The best candidates, I guess, I, I, I would I would talk about if this was a conference race, I would talk about those teams being in the driver's seat, but nobody is really in the driver's seat for an at-large bid. Here's some of the teams, you know, that um, that are going to be in consideration, I think, once it's uh, once it's all over. First of all, you got to, uh, unless there are some extra losses thrown in, you have to figure that the uh, that a runner-up out of this out of the SCAC is going to be in this mix as well. Yeah, I mean, right now you're looking at um, conferences. I mean, three teams in that conference that all have um, pretty solid records: Trinity, Center, Birmingham Southern. But the 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 catch there is that there's only been one game between those three teams so far. That's Center, uh, going back the week before this past Saturday, uh, beating Birmingham Southern 45-20. So Trinity still gets to play both of those teams in San Antonio. Uh, so maybe Trinity ends up winning that conference, uh, you know, with an undefeated record, and then Center. Is a good pool C candidate if with with the wins over Birmingham Southern, or you know maybe they all end up splitting and you have a three way tie and then you have uh, somebody who wins it on the tiebreaker, and then yeah and then you put the other two teams in pool C. Right now with three teams with so many wins, uh, you do have to consider probably the SCAC as one of the conferences that has a real strong chance of having uh, a pool C team. And then there are conferences where. Uh, an underdog still has control of its own destiny, could beat a conference leader and knock that team into uh, at-large consideration. Uh, I think the Empire 8 is one of them. Even though Salisbury's been you know, rolling everybody left, right, and center basically all season, um, and St. John Fisher is coming to their place on November 5th, we at least have to consider the possibility that Fisher could knock off Salisbury and get into the playoffs. And, and more, uh, maybe... Uh, Less outlandish than that, the possibility of Wittenberg beating Wabash, knocking Wabash onto the uh, into at-large consideration, where I think they would be firmly on the bubble uh, with a, a not very strong strength of schedule. And then also you mentioned the MAC situation. Yeah, I think right now you have uh, in the MAC you have 
Delaware Valley, uh, 8-0 unbeaten. Widener and Lycoming, each 7-1. Uh, and one. Widener and Lycoming have also already played each other. Um, but Del Val still has to play both of them. So you could get some significant upheaval in that in that conference. And the, the crazy thing is, if you're a fan of a particular team and you just you just keep an eye on your team and the teams in your conference or the teams on your schedule, you now, over the next few weeks, are going to have to become a national observer. You have to start taking an interest in all these other, other conferences. You know, you want um, Thomas Moore in the pack. You want them to, to, to just win and finish that out. You want, um, you know, maybe you want Redlands or somebody to pick up a loss. They've been, you know, squeaking by the past couple of weeks. Maybe somebody will catch them off guard. You know, all of a sudden you, you got all, you just want the teams that are good to, to win, win their conferences cleanly. And you want the teams that are, are kind of chasing behind. Maybe hopefully a few of them pick up another loss. So your team's pool C chances get a little bit better because it, it really is a big deal. Your resume is a big deal, but it's a big deal how many other teams you're competing with. Right, because there, there are, as we mentioned, there are six bids uh, at large. They uh, are divvied out nationally. There is no uh, guaranteed bid for each region. All six could go to the West. You know, if they, if there were six worthy teams uh, in, in that part of the country, or they, you know, could split them up however they want. There's, there's no guarantee that any one region even gets an at-large bid. And you're competing with, you know, last year. Uh, you know, Keith mentioned this uh, example earlier, basically, but there were nine teams with one loss competing for those six spots. Um, and once you get down to the bottom of of that list of nine, the uh, the the resumes all begin to look pretty similar. Nobody has a great strength of schedule. Nobody has a win against a regionally ranked team, and it becomes really difficult to figure out where to who's going to get in. Yeah, and if you if you just kind of have that 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 natural, I guess, tunnel vision where you you follow your team all year. And you think, how can this team, you know, win eight eight of nine or nine of ten games? And they, they have one week where they didn't even play poorly. They just happen to lose to another good team that end up going to the playoffs or, or, or whatever the case may be. How can, you know, that's the whole reason why you have that large bid. So those teams can can get their second chance that they probably rightfully deserve. But when there's only 32 spots in the playoffs, we're now handing out 25 of them to conference champions. Then you add the 26th bid to, to the uh, pool B, you know, teams that have no access to automatic bids. So 26 of the 32 are off the table from the, the minute week 11's results are in the books. I guess 25 are off the table. One is, is set aside for pool B. So you only have those six. And if there's eight runners up, you know, two teams may have great resumes that would be playoff worthy, but you can't you can't shoehorn eight teams into six spots. You're, you're just going to have to uh, take the best six and and – that that's why they the committee has playoff criteria, and that's what they sit around from pretty much the time the games end on on Saturday night to some point Sunday morning they finish up that bracket and uh, and start working on those playoff bids. So it's a um, the playoff hunt really starts now, and, and for anybody who uh, doesn't think the way the things are done in Division Three is fun, I, I call you crazy because it it, it gets it it gets. It never stops churning, you know. The, the, everything keeps changing from uh, from pretty much about week seven, week eight, right on to the the very last uh, minute on uh, second Saturday of November. Yeah, the thing is, in Division Three, everybody has their path to the playoffs. If you're a Pool B team, you pretty much have to run the table. Uh, and if you're a, if you're in a conference, you need to win your conference's automatic bid, not just you know finish in a tie for the top, but you need to 
uh, you need to be in a position where you've won that tiebreaker, no matter how the conference divvies it out. And it's certainly the conference's prerogative to decide how they do it. But the thing is, is that in the uh, the the 12 years that we've had this playoff system so far, there's no, there hasn't been one team that has followed its path and not gotten a playoff bid. At the beginning of the season, everybody has their destiny in front of them. It may be daunting to go 10 and 0 or or to win a, a rugged conference, but you know that is the path that's that's laid out for you. So if you follow that path, you get that uh, that goal accomplished you get rewarded with a playoff bid and if you're if you if you're not able to finish that path then you're you know practically almost everybody's on the bubble when you have just six at large bids yeah nine nine wins doesn't entitle you to anything in division 3 and uh you know that's that's can can be a tough break you know by one perspective but at the same time that's what makes these uh these playoff opportunities so special and and what makes the players cherish them you know these teams, uh, you know, Mount Union and Whitewater, even they they they're not at the point where they uh, assume that they're, they're going to get in or they don't cherish it when they get there because you never know when you're going to get back. And, and you don't know. Nothing is guaranteed, really, until you clinch that automatic bid. And uh, for all those teams that are in the that, that have a loss right now, you know, I, I think this is it's a fun time. You know, yet you kind of have to buckle down, take care of your own business first and then keep uh, an eye out on the rest of the game games on Saturday across the country, you know, you got to become a fan of the teams that are out in front and root against the teams that are jogging right next to you. Hopefully some of them fall off, but it, uh, it makes for really, uh, I think as an exciting race as, as possible because you have 27 conferences, 239 teams and almost all of their results kind of, uh, impact you in one way or another. In the midst of this, uh, playoff hunt, uh, and it is actually also playoff relevant, uh, there are a, a couple of individual accomplishments, um, you know, decade long plus NCAA Division three career records that are in danger of falling here coming up just this week. Uh, we've talked er, um, earlier in the season uh, here on the podcast about uh, Mike Zwiefel of the University of Dubuque. Uh, he caught another 17 passes on Saturday in a uh, 47-17 win at Buena Vista. He now, he now needs just 11 more catches to, uh, to catch up to Westminster, Missouri receiver Scott Pingle for the most career receptions in NCAA football history. And of course, uh, so Pingle played for Westminster back at the, uh, the dawn of the uh, d3football.com uh, site. He uh, he finished his career in 1999. The guy who threw him all those passes, Justin Peary, uh, was also a, a, a class of 1999 for them, or a 1999 senior, um, has the uh, career record for most touchdown passes. Uh, and uh, his record is in danger of being uh, tied or broken this upcoming week as well. Alex Tanney of Monmouth has thrown 28 touchdowns this season. He has 147 for his career and needs just one to tie Peary. It's, it's kind of mind-boggling a little bit, Keith. You know, uh, Justin Peary and, and uh, Scott Pingle were, you know, two pretty big names on offense in Division Three uh, you know, back in the, the late 90s, and both of their records could go down on the same weekend. Yeah, maybe they'll even get a chance to, you know, get together and, uh, you know, reminisce one last time about being the, the great tandem that they were. And, uh, you know, as their records may, you know, may both fall on, on Saturday. You know, the amazing thing about their records is, is, you know, beyond the fact that they were both able to stay healthy and play together uh, for, for such a long period of time. But the, the, the spread offense sort of had just gotten popular in the late 90s. And so they were putting up numbers that at the time looked like they, they may not be touched, you know, ever. 
And now again to the point where, granted, these numbers are, are absurd that Tanny and uh, and Zwiefel are putting up, and they've done it, you know, by virtue of playing, you know, starting pretty much from day one, so playing an entire four seasons, or in some cases more than four seasons. Actually, both um, in their cases, both cases, right? More than four seasons, and and uh, in in uh, Zwiefel's case, you know, he's done it at, at a couple of different schools, and I started out at River Falls. We'll remember the. Uh, it's it's still outstanding. And I think the the real concern, I don't know if it's probably, it's not the right word on my part, but both of these teams are in playoff races right now. Dubuque sits on top of the uh, uh, the conference in Iowa, uh, you know, at five and one, seven and one. And then, uh, you know, I think Monmouth is in pretty good shape in the, uh, in the Midwest conference, having beaten, I think most of the teams right on its tail. Uh, they just need to finish that out right there. They're seven and one, uh, seven and oh in the conference. But you want I, personally, I want to see both these guys, uh, regardless of whether or not they break the records. It looks like they're pretty good, pretty good shape to break them, if not this week, you know, before the season is out. Um, but you want to see them in the playoffs too, because you want to see the best face the best. And and we're talking about a couple teams, you know, at the top of this, the the top twenty five right now that have great defenses, uh, and you want to see the elite offensive players get in the playoffs and test those defenses. We're coming up on lightning round time. If you're uh, with us here 45 minutes into this podcast um, and have somehow forgotten what you're listening to, this is the uh, D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. I'm Pat Coleman. He's Keith McMillan. Um, the, uh, there are some things, obviously, that, that are happening that aren't necessarily in the midst of heated uh, conference races or might not have Pool C uh, impact. And yet, are still uh, interesting, and 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 still for uh, good teams or, or interesting teams. Uh, I want to talk about Lewis and Clark, for example, Keith. Uh, you know, they they go to six and zero. This is their best season since nineteen ninety one. Now, yeah, and and again, you know, we couldn't be more thrilled for them because there was a point, um, two thousand four. You know, where they only played two thousand five. It was they only played four of, of their games. You know, they canceled the the Northwest Conference portion of their schedule. And uh, it was a program that we thought was on the brink. And, and uh, Chris Sulages uh, came a, f- a few years ago, and I re- he talked to us. You know, every couple of years we check in, write a story, and uh, he was saying it's building. It's going to take some time because it's it's a, it's a, um, a special institution to a lot of people. A lot of people are, are proud of this this um, this school, but the football program had fallen on hard times. And to get them back to six and zero is a big deal. You know, they had six wins combined in 09 and 2010 and to go from two and seven to four and five to six and zero, you know, that that's that incremental improvement. You're seeing them jump by two wins every season right now. So six and zero, that, that may be, they, they may finish with six wins because their schedule is so backloaded. They go to Pacific Lutheran this week and they play with Lamont and then they finish up at Linfield. So that six and zero start as wonderful as it is. Um, it, it may get tougher now that this last third of the season. Uh, Johns Hopkins 83, Gettysburg 21. Yeah, absurd is the first number that, that or the first word that comes into my head when you see numbers like that, 83 and, points. And Keith, uh, and Keith, 27 points for Johns Hopkins in the fourth quarter. Yeah, uh, you know, I don't. They don't. They don't need to score like that. Um, and, and I know they're not. It's not a team that's generally trying to run up the score because a lot of their scores have been held down this season because Hopkins has been a team that's. Uh, that's been powered mostly by its defense. Now, 731 yards of offense, it's to the point where you can't stop scoring. You're making you know, either long runs or long plays at that point. And I know Gettysburg had sort of been a hot offense, but when you put uh, you know, 60 points of difference between yourself and the other team, it's, uh, 
it's pretty absurd. I will just point out the one mitigating factor. The last one was a, a fumble return that was uh, returned 37 yards for a score. But yeah, uh, so Johns Hopkins improves to, uh, I was going to say improves to 83, improves to 7-0 and uh, with that 83-21 win. Uh, similarly, in terms of offensive numbers, you know, I, I kind of thought and, and speculated out loud in the uh, triple take that maybe Salisbury would, uh, I would say struggle, but uh, maybe not be so blisteringly dominant after its second consecutive you know eight to ten hour bus trip up to upstate new york but uh they continued to uh, handle the empire eight well and they uh rolled past hartwick 61 14. yeah i believe you part of your exact quote was uh how many points would be surprisingly close would 42 be close and i uh, end up kind of hitting it on the head or pretty close to it uh 61 14 was the final that game was 54 7 at the end of the third quarter uh salisbury in salisbury's favor so it, it more of the same from them and I, I think you know they're looking ahead of course to this big showdown coming out with saint john fisher but if they roll right on through that you know we could be looking at a potential uh east coast team and a team literally on the coast um actually be in the, the, the East region number one seed and then having Mountain Union, uh, you know, filter down. They may, they may be the one in, in the North and then Whitewater would be in the West and somebody else may get left out of a bit in the West. And so, again, the same way we were talking about how these Pool C teams have to have interest in all the games and all the conference races around the country because there's trickle-down effect. I think there's the same type of deal. If you're a fan of Mary Harden-Baylor or Linfield or St. Thomas or Whitewater or Mountain Union, Got to take a keen interest in Salisbury because if they earn a number one seed in the East, could could uh, affect you know where you get seated out here all the way in the West. And it completely changes the dynamic of the Route 13 rivalry coming up this week, where uh, Salisbury goes to Wesley. So many times in the last decade, Keith, uh, a Pool B playoff bid has been riding basically on the outcome of this game, and now uh, you know Salisbury needs this obviously for for playoff seating purposes, but they don't need it in uh, necessarily to get into the playoffs if they win the Empire Eight. No, at this point, they're playing sort of for respect to, to, and to keep things rolling. And, and I know me personally on, on my ballot, Salisbury actually passed Wesley a couple weeks ago. And it was a moment for me <laughs> feeling that feeling out where I'm like, wow, you know, this is what things have, have come to because Salisbury hasn't even beaten Wesley yet. You know, and, and I was always kind of one of those people who said, you got to You got to do it against Wesley. You got to show us that you are that you really um, have made that jump. And, and they still probably ha have to do it. But they can kind of go in playing loose because you're right. It doesn't, they lose that game. doesn't, doesn't affect their empire eight uh, playoff bid. Meanwhile, Wesley's desperate may not be the word, but they can't afford to pick up another loss. Pool B is already shaky as it is because there's only one, one bid on the table and they've already have the, the loss to Kane. So Wesley needs this. And, and this, you know, by all accounts, isn't most, isn't Wesley's most well-rounded team um, or probably it's, it's not its most talented team, but there's enough talent there. You know, to be a playoff team and, and, and maybe to be Wesley, you know, no, no two teams know each other as well as these two teams. So there won't be any, uh, I don't think there'll be a 69 points, um, you know, because Wesley won't be caught off guard trying to defend that option. Uh, it, it seems like a good time in the podcast to, uh, to mention or to uh, kind of recognize a couple of things that happened over the past week. First of all, uh, Steve Moore, the head coach of Trinity, Texas, uh, hope he's feeling better. His, uh, he was unable to accompany his team uh, out to Georgia when they uh, played LaGrange Trail that they have, but came back to win 14-10. Uh, but also, um, you know, Wesley offensive coordinator Chip Knapp has gotten, uh, I think, a, a, 
a fair amount of recognition from us. He's a, a guy who's uh, in, in charge of a uh, of a, a pretty well-respected unit, and and Mike Drass, the head coach at Wesley, is is really the defensive guy, and and Chip is given the you know, f pretty much uh, free reign with the offense, and he is a, 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 a very important part there. Uh, his son, Ben, went into cardiac arrest on uh, on Friday morning as the team was traveling out to uh, their game against uh, Walsh, an NAI opponent in uh, eastern Ohio. So uh, uh, Ben is in the, is at, was at Pittsburgh's uh, Children's Hospital. Uh, Chip was there with him, uh, and, and Wesley kind of struggled, but eventually came away to win 28-3. And, and sort of a very serious moment for, for Wesley because, you know, uh, Coach Knapp is, probably, is like family to, to a lot of those players. And, and, you know, when you have a son that's around the program uh, or, or and this happens with a lot of coaches, a lot of their family becomes sort of part of the family, part of the program because they're there all the time. And uh, if I'm reading correctly, you know, it says Wesley uh, stopped on the way back, you know, to, to give the game ball to uh to Ben in the hospital and I know that's 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 a, that's a guy who will be on their minds and you know whenever we hear something like that um we just hope that 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 the person is is uh you know doing well you know I'm glad we didn't hear that that somebody died you know and uh Wesley's playing this sort of strange barnstorming schedule because of where they got left and uh, it's, it's turning out to be a pretty um, eventful journey for them, and uh, you know, in, in more ways than one. And hopefully, they'll uh, they'll 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 all be better off for it, and hopefully, uh, Ben Knapp recovers. And I wanted to finish out the lightning round with a little bit of recognition for Frostburg State, which uh, won its homecoming game on Saturday uh, in exciting fashion, defeating Alfred in double overtime, fifty-four, fifty-three. Talk about a, another program that's had a tumultuous year. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking the very same thing. You know that their their journey has been something far beyond what they could have imagined. But but even within within the white lines, their football journey has been something pretty impressive too. You know, picking up their third win is actually a big deal for them because it hasn't been a program that that's won uh, many games over the past several seasons. And then you know you also factor in them joining the the Empire Eight. And Alfred being the, the playoff representative from the Empire Eight yesterday, uh, last, yesterday, last season, and uh, you know to beat them uh, is a big deal. It, it's something that, again, when you're building up a program, you got to have something that you can take uh, to to recruits and, and sell them on the future. And you're gonna say, you know, you got a chance to get a great education here. You got a chance to play as soon as possible. But you also have to have something that, that, that kids can latch onto. And when they're and when you join a brand new league and you say, look, we're competing with a team that, that was in the playoffs last year and beat a team by sixty in the playoffs last season and went out to Mountain Union and played them well last season and we beat them. Uh, that that's something that, that you can latch onto. Coming up this week uh, as we get into week nine uh, some of the big games, Wisconsin-Stevens Point at uh, Whitewater. Uh, Elmhurst is at North Central. We mentioned the uh, Salisbury-Wesley game. Thomas Moore at Westminster. Uh, we, we just kind of slipped past the, the pack just a little bit. Um, and, and I know it, it may seem like a foregone conclusion because Thomas Moore is at the head of the conference and, and W&J, the other traditional uh, conference uh, contender, has picked up a couple losses and, and is out of it. But Westminster and Waynesburg are not. It's true. None of these conferences are ever a foregone conclusion. Even even the OAC technically could could you know if Baldwin Wallace plays the game of its its life every every five years or so, Mount Union loses a conference game. So it could we could be due for that. And uh, same deal in in the pack. You know, for so long, 
Washington Jefferson was the dominant program and Thomas Moore just sort of taking that role from them. But one of these days, you know, if they don't play their best game, uh, any team can have it. So we, we do sort of pencil these teams into the playoffs, but we, we shouldn't be writing in uh, in dry ink or permanent ink because uh, so many things can change so quickly. Uh, also coming up this weekend, uh, Wabash is at Allegheny. Uh, Ursinus travels to Johns Hopkins. Wisconsin Oshkosh hosts lacrosse. Uh, we mentioned earlier one of these games in the SCAC. Birmingham Southern is at Trinity. Uh, a, a, a Friday night game that uh, intrigues me only because it's it's Catholic playing on a Friday night, and it's been a, kind of an adventuresome season, a, another adventuresome Saturday for the Cardinals. A, a Catholic at WNL on Friday night. Yeah, well, you mentioned the Saturday. This, you know, came back to win to beat Emory and Henry uh, this past Saturday. The team, the ODAC team, they sort of had their number. I think the stat you, you put on the site was uh, they're they're seven and six against Emory and Henry and seventeen and forty four against everyone else in the ODAC over the years. Yeah, and then, and then you got on the other side of this Friday night game, you got Washington and Lee that just put up fifty two points, scoring like mad this season. And uh, you have an ODAC race that that it, it gets tighter and tighter. You know, you. you Think Hampton Sydney or WNL is going to put some distance between teams, but uh, the cardiac cards playing on Friday night will uh, definitely be something for us to, uh, to to keep an eye on, at least by Twitter, and uh, and, and watch those scores go back and forth. Uh, other games outside the top twenty-five: uh, Wilkes is at Kings. That's a, a cross-street rivalry, and then the uh, the records where that records could be set: uh, Dubuque hosts Luther, and Monmouth is at Carroll, and that is. Uh, what week nine in the Division Three football season looks like? I'm looking forward to it. You know, I, I didn't think Week Eight was going to be uh, as great a week as it turned out to be. And in, in this one, Week Nine has has all kinds of uh, great stuff written all over because just about every conference, every region has a uh, big key games going on. And if you like Week 9, you're really going to love Week 10 because we've got a lot of stuff uh, coming up for that. If you want to know more about Week 10, tune in and download the Around the Nation podcast next week. But we're going to wrap it up for this week. Uh, he's Keith McMillan. I'm Pat Coleman. Don't forget to uh, stick around, d3football.com, for the rest of the week. We have, uh, we have uh, the D3 reports coming up on Monday afternoon. Um, if you're a, if you're a coach out there sitting out there cutting video, and I know a lot of you listen to uh, the podcast while you're doing that, uh, send us your nominees uh, for Play of the Week. Uh, we really need to see them by about five o'clock uh, Central Time on Monday afternoon, in order to really get considered, because we uh, vote on it overnight. It's announced and on the site Tuesday morning. Sponsored by the City of Salem, and then uh, around the region uh, columns Tuesday and Wednesday afternoon, and then Keith's around the nation column on Thursday.